This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. John 18. Uh, before I start on John 18, I, before I start this week, I wanted to make a reference uh, just to last week's uh, message, which was a message on unity and uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. And I want to thank, I, I, I don't know details, but I had a number of people tell me there was conversations that were had in the week in response to that. And I had a conversation myself with somebody regarding reconciliation, so I participated with you in all that. And uh, so th- thank you for your response to the Lord, and may we just continue with that. Now here's what I wanted to announce this week. Last week I talked about reconciliation in marriage, in families, in community groups, and in our church. But I didn't talk about reconciliation in church as plural. And uh, so I wanted to bring a little bit of an announcement about that today. We had a family meeting this summer where we expressed um, that in the group of churches we're part of, network of churches, family of churches, however you want to refer to it, Sovereign Grace Ministries, uh, that we've been in a, in a season of evaluation and uh, and, a, and some of that has been precipitated by some, some conflict that has gone on. And so we have brought in a conciliation organization to help bring you... Uh, evaluations, suggestions, uh, reconciliation, wherever that would be necessary, and that sort of a thing. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up now is because we'd love to invite your input or help if you would so desire to be involved in that. On the city this morning, I posted uh, a little announcement that you can just look at on the city, and basically uh, it is referring to uh, the Sovereign Grace Ministries blog from October 7th. So if you don't remember that, it's SovereignGraceMinistries.org. Or .com, you can get there either way. You may not remember the date, but if you go on the city, there's a link. You can click on October 7th, and there's um, an explanation of how you could participate and help out in this if you would want. There's some training being offered uh, on conflict resolution, which will be live in Maryland, which might be very difficult to get to. Also, it will be offered online afterwards, uh, and also an opportunity to offer any feedback that you would have, whether or not you participate in the training. You could participate in offering some feedback if you would like. Um, so I just want to make you aware of that, and you can link to that from the city, and that's a way that uh, if you have suggestions on how uh, the network of churches can grow, improve, change, um, or if you'd like to offer encouragements, you're welcome to do that as well. I want to make you aware of that. Okay, John 18. John 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. We're going to look at the arrest of Jesus Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this historical account of the, res- of the uh, arrest of Jesus. And we pray that you would speak to us through it today, Lord. We want to understand your character and your nature and your work. And, Lord, we want to even view a narrative like this and, and be changed by you as we encounter you through this word. So speak to us today. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that I could communicate your truth to serve uh, the folks gathered here today. And I pray that you would fill us all with your spirit and empower us to respond and act according to your word. Speak to us now and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has spoken about his coming hour. He's anticipated his hour. At times he said, it's not yet my hour. And now we're to the place in the Gospel where Jesus' hour has arrived. Uh, His hour is the time of his death. It's the reason that he has come. He talks about this sort of conglomeration of events, his arrest, his trial, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. These events that begin right here, we've been tracking this book the entire entirety of 2011, and right today we begin to get to the passages in John that are his hour. So all that we've seen of Jesus, his character, his teaching, his works, everything we've observed about him over 10 months, or 9 months, or however long it's been, they're all sort of coming to a head, and the very purpose for his coming is about to be on display as we observe his hour, his hour. Um, from the very beginning of John, we saw this. It was sort of the, the purpose of Jesus was telegraphed to us early on when John the Baptist in chapter 1 points out Jesus and says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so from the very beginning, we're told that Jesus is a lamb. Now, what do they mean by that? It doesn't mean Jesus is gentle, meek, and mild like a furry little lamb. What it means is that he will die as a sacrifice like a lamb would under the old covenant. So from the very beginning, we realize Jesus is going to die as a sacrifice. That means like a lamb, he's going to die for someone else and specifically for someone else's sins. So we know that from the beginning, and here we get to the place where he's going to lay down his life. Now, in this passage we just read, we're going to see Jesus in a light that we may not have expected, because here's what's going on. Jesus is really ruling and leading through this process of his own arrest, as we'll see in the text. So while the Lamb of God is an absolutely truthful description of Jesus, because it's biblical, but it's not an entire description of Jesus, Because a lamb is sort of passive, and a lamb, I'm sure, is resistant to being killed and uh, would do anything to squirm or to get away. But Jesus is knowingly and willingly and intentionally offering himself as a sacrifice. And it starts with this section where we see him offering himself at his arrest. And in these verses, we're going to see that God's sovereignty is on display as Jesus prepares to be sacrificed for us. God's sovereignty is on display as Jesus prepares to be sacrificed. So I'm going to really talk about two things, those two things. One, Jesus the sovereign, as it's, as that comes out in this text. And two, Jesus the sacrifice. Jesus the sovereign, Jesus the sacrifice. Now the word sovereign 
is a word that a lot of Christians just toss around. We don't even know what it means, but it kind of sounds like what you're supposed to say when somebody's having a bad time. God is sovereign. Um, that's just, it becomes flippant for many of us. But sovereign means king. And when we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he rules as a king. And not just rules like at the will of the people or something like that, but he rules absolutely as a king. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. So God rules, God is in control, God oversees, and so that's what sovereign means. So though we can toss that out flippantly sometimes, someone says, hey, I lost my job. Well, God is sovereign. Or I lost my cat. Well, God is good. You know, whatever it would be like that. Thank you on the second row, uh, dog lover. Um, but sovereign means that God is, in fact, ruling and controlling and overseeing all that happens. And we see that in this passage. Here's what happens. After the Last Supper, after Jesus' teaching, after his prayer in chapter 17, verse 1 says, after he spoke these words, they went, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So they leave the city, Jerusalem. They walk across this valley. They come to what other passages tell us is the Mount of Olives, and they come to what the other gospel writers tell us is the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says they enter the garden. Now, that's because it may have been a walled garden. They're common there, and so there may have been a fence or a solid wall that sort of separated this garden, and that's why he enters. It also separates it because it may have been a private garden of someone, maybe a friend of Jesus and the disciples. But they enter this garden area. Now, this is an area they hung out at. That's what verse 3 says, or verse 2 um, says that now Judas, who betrayed him, he knew of this place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So you meet with your friends wherever, at a coffee shop, um, at a bowling alley, I don't know, wherever you meet your friends, uh, you have a spot where you hang out. Well, Jesus and his disciples hung out sometimes at this garden. And so Judas knew that, and Jesus knew that Judas knew that, and so Jesus leads his disciples to the place that Judas would know. Because the Bible says that, in verse 4, that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. So he's not caught off guard, he's setting himself up. He knows what Judas knows, and that's why he goes here. So, verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, and torches and weapons. Very descriptive, isn't it? John gives us quite a bit of interesting data about this event. First of all, he says that Judas went and he got soldiers, a band of soldiers. Could have been a large group. Who are these soldiers? Well, three times of year, three times of year, uh, all the Hebrews descended on Jerusalem for big feasts. They're at the feast of the Passover right now. And so that means a lot of Jews would gather in the city of Jerusalem and they are under Roman rule. They're under Roman rule. They have a measure of freedom to govern them, but they're ultimately under the govern, uh, the governance of Rome. And so when they would have these big gatherings with literally hundreds of thousands of people, Rome would send a lot of soldiers. Because when you rule over people's countries and hundreds of thousands of them to get together, you need to have a presence so that there's not riots, there's not uprisings. So Roman presence at feasts was not unusual. So Judas goes and gets Roman soldiers, maybe a lot of them. They're armed, it says. Why would they care about Jesus? 
Well, they would care about Jesus because just a few days before this, Jesus comes into the city on what we call Palm Sunday, and everybody is putting down palm branches, and they're all shouting Hosanna to the king. They're all proclaiming him a king. And so Jesus is very likely on the watch list of the Roman soldiers because this guy came in, everybody said he's a king, and now we can go arrest him. If the Jews want to arrest him, yeah, we're in on that. So they come. Also, the police come, the temple police that are with the chief priests and Pharisees, verse 3. So the chief priests and Pharisees are religious guys. They're kind of like the religious rulers of the day, and they have a police force in the temple. These are like security guards at a megachurch or whatever. They just protect during worship. There's no problems. And there's an armed presence of people who are here in case somebody comes into the feast celebrates a little bit too much, drinks a little bit too much, disagrees, has an argument, has a fight, starts trying to have a following, whatever it is, that people could get rowdy even at a religious feast. And so there is a temple, somebody could steal. I mean, any any kind of things ha- could happen even among religious people when they join. So there's a police force. So these police come out, the Roman soldiers come out, the religious leaders come out, and they come out, John says, verse 3, with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, why does he tell us that? Well, I think he tells us that. This is not a throwaway detail that that God, through John, is communicating something to us. Well, what's he saying by lanterns and torches? He's saying it's dark, for one thing. Literally, it's dark, but it's figuratively dark as well. This is a dark story um, because it's the night that humanity is coming to arrest God. And so there's darkness in this story. And they bring lights probably because they are, it's dark, but probably they may anticipate having to search Jesus out. In other words, this is like your flan, uh, your, your, lan, uh, your, uh, flashlights is what I'm saying. Flantern is a flashlight lantern. Flantern. That is a good idea. I just thought of something. So anyway, uh, I'll be selling them at Christmas, but, uh, flanterns. So, uh, they are, they have their lanterns which operate like a flashlight. So if Jesus tries to hide, if he's burrowed behind a bush, they can find him. Um, they can find, he's a criminal in their mind, if he's perhaps an insurrectionist wanting to be king. So they're going to find him. And they also bring weapons because it might get ugly. There might be violence. So they're armed. They're well lit so that they can find Jesus, especially if he is hiding or if he tries to escape, they'll be able to find him. But look what the passage tells us. You really don't need any lights because Jesus isn't hiding at all. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, so key, he knows all things. He's omniscient. He's not a victim. That This whole story is communicating. Jesus isn't like a victim that he is being sought after and he couldn't get away and he was at their uh, mercy, you know, something like that. He's in charge. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, which probably means he came to the doorway. If there's a passageway or a doorway in the wall or the fence, he comes forward and he takes the initiative with the soldiers and the police. Jesus says to them, verse 4, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? What's, what's with all the arm, you know, the armed forces, the, the soldiers, maybe horse, maybe they're on horseback, the lanterns, the lights, the weapons. What's with all this? Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he responds and tells them, uh, Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, 
when it says, I am he, there's a footnote, and it says that he literally says, I am. That's what he literally answers the question. So where's Jesus? He says, I am. Looking for Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And then look at this detail of what happens, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Wow. They fall, they, they, they lose control, and they hit the ground. Why is this? Because Jesus, in saying I am, is asserting that he is God. He's revealing himself as God. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses through a burning bush and says, you know, go back and set my people free from Egypt. And Moses says to the burning bush, which is a presence of God speaking to him, he says, who shall I tell them sent me? What's this God's name that's telling me to go battle Pharaoh? They're going to ask, like, who are you? And what do I tell them your name is? And God says this, tell them I am sent you. Tell them being sent you. Tell them he is, I am, the, the essence of being sent you. What he's saying is, I am being, I am self-existent. You tell them the God that is talking to you is the God that just is. He's self-existent all by himself, of himself, for himself, to himself. He's not created. He's not a God that's created like the sun or the water. He's the God who just is being in and of himself, uncreated, completely independent. This God doesn't answer to anybody. This God doesn't need anyone. He's not relying and dependent. This is the God who is being. It sounds like this profoundly philosophical statement, but it's really very simple. He just is, and that's all there is to it. And Jesus, in an earlier event, claims to be God, claims to be the I am in, uh, in John chapter 8. Now, I am, it translated from Hebrew as Yahweh. So you may have heard the name of God is Yahweh. In the Old Testament, that's one of his names. Yahweh just means I am. So in John 8, 58, it says this, that Jesus tells those who are criticizing him, before Abraham was, Abraham lived hundreds of years before Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am. So he's saying before Abraham was even uh, born, I am in existence. I am Yahweh. That's what he's saying. I'm God. And they pick up stones, and they are ready to stone him. They're ready to kill him on the spot because he claimed to be God. Now, here when he claims to be God, and he is, something different happens. They all pass out, or I don't know if they lost consciousness. They all fall to the ground. That's, that's what the Scripture tells us. They all fall to the ground. Why is that? Some people say, well, the Jews, you know, it could be a response like when someone blasphemes, the Jews would rip their garment or something like that. Um, and so maybe when he says this, they're just like, whoa, that's unbelievable. And they just hit the ground. They're shocked and they're responding because of the irreverence of his claiming to be God. And before they picked up stones here, they're just going to kind of fall to the ground. I, I don't think that's what's going on here because the, the passage says when he said, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. The impression is the whole company fell to the ground. Now, there are religious Jews there. There's the Jewish police who may have been shocked by Jesus' utterance. But the Roman soldiers couldn't care less who's cursing what God, who claims to be what God. What does it matter to them? And it's not reactionary. It's not as if the, the religious leaders are like, whoa, and they just fall down. 
And the Roman soldiers armed, I mean, these are the security guys, the armed soldiers like, oh, well, they fell down, we better, you know, they're not going to, it's not imitative behavior. Something happens to knock them down. And when God reveals himself, there is a power. When Jesus acknowledges, I am God, in this instance, there is a power that causes them to lose control and hit the ground. And I think that's happening because it's very clear of who is in control. Judas is not in control. The Jewish authorities are not in control. The Roman authorities, which are the greatest authority in the world, they're not in control. God is in control in Jesus Christ. And when he announces his identity, people lose control and hit the ground. That's what's happening. Jesus is in control of this situation. He's not cowering behind a bush until some soldier with a lantern finds him. He's stepping up to the door and saying, who are you looking for? Proclaiming that he's God and everybody hits the ground. It's the power of God that is on display here. He is not a victim. He is sovereign. He is not being ruled over. He is ruling. He is not at the mercy or at the expense of their actions. He can do what he wants as God. He's all-powerful. And so he basically uh, says, now, who is it again that you were looking for? And, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I told you that I am he. And if you seek me, let these men go. So they get back up. The second identification doesn't have the same effect. And he says, look, these guys, you want me? Okay, I'll come, but you let these guys be free, meaning his disciples who are with him. The wolves come and the shepherd protects the sheep. So these are mine. Let them go. And then he agrees to go with them. And then, I mean, this would just be, this is just movie drama right here, because then what happens is at this point, when Jesus is giving himself up, Peter wants to take control of the situation. Now, Peter does this at other parts in the Gospels, where he's just this guy that is out there. He just says what some people are thinking, but would never say it. Uh, he corrects Jesus at points, and um it's pretty pretty audacious how bold he is. So he inserts himself, and what he does is he pulls out a sword. And we don't know how big it is. Some people say the word used for sword here indicated more like a dagger. Um, so maybe that's it. He's packing a concealed weapon. So like under the robe, there's like this sheath on his leg, and it's in there. I don't know. Maybe that's what's going on. That kind of makes it seem more dramatic, doesn't it? Uh, and so he just kind of you know does his robe over it and pulls out his dagger. And what he does is he decides he's going to step in and take control. And I might not be able to take all these guys, but I can take one of them. And so he's going to go after the high priest's servant, whose name is Malchus, the text tells us. And it says that verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So he's going for a headshot. He's not just like waving. This isn't like on guard, you know, or something like this where he's like an offense. He's got a thing and he's going for the guy's head. It, it, going for, and he, he moves or whatever, we don't know, but he cuts his ear off. And uh, Jesus has to step in and say, Peter, put your sword up. The, the gospel of Luke says that Jesus says, now stop it or something like that. He says, stop it. He corrects him. And the gospel of Luke says that he heals the man's severed ear. Now, I don't know how that happens, but here are all the forces against Jesus. I mean, I don't know if he's like bending over Peter and, you know, picking it up and popping it back on the guy. I don't know how, or if he's like dangling. I hate to be so, I mean, I think about these things. I don't know. When I read the Bible, I sort of think about it. So is it like dangling and he just goes, whoop, 
I, I don't know how he does it, but he takes a guy's severed ear, which is cut off, reattaches it, and heals him, according to Luke 22. So here's the power of God. First of all, he speaks and everybody falls. Secondly, the creator of the universe who created Malchus's, who formed, the Bible would say, he formed Malchus in his mother's womb. He created him. And now when his ear is removed, the creator takes the ear and reattaches it lovingly, caring for Malchus, who is his enemy, by the way, coming to arrest him. And he heals him. What's so interesting about this is that Peter doesn't know what's going on. He's, this is a dark situation, right? He's in the dark of what's really happening. He thinks G- they're coming to get Jesus, and Jesus is giving up. This cannot be good, and I must step in and make something happen. I must stop this. They can't take Jesus, and so I'll just go after a guy and, and start something and see what happens. He, he thinks that he is going to come in and he's going to slice at the problem, which is the enemies of Jesus. He cannot see that what's really happening is God is in control and God is relinquishing himself to the authorities. That Jesus knows, verse 4, everything that's going to happen. Jesus gets this and Jesus is responding because he is going to be laying down his life for us. God is in control of this, and Peter doesn't get it right now, but he later will get it, because in Acts 2, Peter will stand up and preach the first sermon of the Christian church, and this is what he will say in Acts 2, verses 22 through 23. He stands up and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, now track with these words, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge, that means God knew ahead of time, the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now he's about to lead them all to Christ. There's 3,000 men that are going to get saved that day, become Christians. But what he's saying is, you killed him, but it wasn't just your doing. God delivered him up by his definite plan and foreknowledge. And that's what's happening here. He's being delivered up by the Father. Jesus is God. Jesus is delivering himself up as well. This isn't an act. He is sovereign. Peter doesn't need to insert himself and fix the problem for God who can't act. God is acting. He's blowing people over with the revelation of who he is. He's healing severed ears. He's the creator, the healer, the sovereign. And he's giving himself up and doesn't need the help of the creation in this dark night to help the creator with his plan. He knows exactly what he's doing. And here's what he's doing. Jesus, the sovereign, is preparing to be, point two, Jesus, the sacrifice. He exercises control and yields himself to the Father. Now look what he tells Peter here in verse 11. Put your sword into its sheath. I mean, Peter's violent sword, he thinks he's warring against the enemy, but he's really warring against the purposes of God. Because Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, don't stop this. This is about me drinking the cup that the Father's provided for me to drink. Now, what is the cup? 
In the Old Testament, this is an Old Testament image. In the Old Testament, regularly, I'm just going to share two examples with you. But regularly in the Old Testament, the cup refers to the cup of God's wrath against sin. It's a picture of a cup which is God's anger against sin, his holy judgment against sin, that his enemies are required to drink. It's a picture of the enemies of God receiving the judgment. The wrath of God. So, for instance, Psalm 75, verse 8 says this. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. So there's a cup that is uh, that God pours out, and from what is poured out, wicked people drink that. This isn't literally, it's a um, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a metaphor, that they will drain it to the dregs. That means drink it, we would say drink it to the last drop, is what we would say. So, God has judgment, he's going to pour it from this cup, and those who are enemies of God will, will drink it to the dregs, and that judgment, his judgment, ultimately is eternal. It's a forever judgment against sin. Look at Jeremiah, we'll show you this, Jeremiah 25. Here, here's another passage where the prophet Jeremiah says something very similar. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So Jesus stops Peter from taking taking control of the situation and he says, I I am... If you do this, Peter, it will hinder what I'm... My purpose, which is to drink the cup that the Father has given me. The cup of judgment. The cup of wrath. Now, here's where this doesn't seem to make sense to us, because in the passages I read to you and all the other passages of the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath is for his enemies. The cup of God's wrath is for those who oppose him. The cup of God's wrath is for sinners that don't love God but are opposed to God. Yet Jesus is God. Jesus is perfect. He's gracious and holy and merciful and righteous and flawless in every detail. His character is immaculate. God is, uh, Jesus is absolutely perfect. So how can the cup of the wrath of the Father be something that Jesus says, I'm going to take that cup? Because that cup is designated for the wicked, is what Jeremiah said. It's for the wicked. So how is Jesus, who's not wicked, going to get the cup for the wicked? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the substitute. Jesus comes and in our place takes the wrath. So Jesus is completely innocent. But you and I are sinful. And he is going to take the wrath that is due our sin. Paul said it this way. For our sake, in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What he's saying is God takes our sins... All of our sins, our anger, our selfishness, our pride, our, our gossip, our uh, lying, our idolatry, our theft, our hatred, all of our sins, our dishonoring of him, even the good things that we do with wrong motives. So when we do what we think is good to make us right with God, that's sinful because we're trying to make ourselves right with God. When we do the right thing so that someone will notice us or appreciate us or love us rather than doing it for the glory of God, that's wrong. So our bad works and all of our good works that we try to make ourselves right with God, he takes all of those works, our greed, our lust, all of those things, our sexual sins, our drunkenness, 
um, our love of the world and, 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 dis, and, 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 and hatred towards God. He takes all those things and he says, because of those, my wrath is going to be poured out. And figuratively, my wrath is in a cup that the sinner must drink. And that wrath is an eternal condemnation, an eternal judgment in hell away from God. But what he says is, I'm going to take all of your sins and put them on Jesus. All of those things I listed and a thousand more, I'm going to put those on Jesus and I'm going to pour out my wrath on him. So Jesus on the cross is going to drink the cup of God's judgment for my sin and for your sin. And then here's what he's going to do is that he is going to forgive us. God is going to take Jesus's righteousness, his obedience, and credit it to us and take our sin and credit it to Jesus. And forgive us, that's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to take the cup we deserve. You know, sometimes when we have large groups of people over and we don't want to uh, wash dishes, well, we don't ever want to wash dishes, but uh, so sometimes it doesn't have to be a large group. But sometimes when we have uh, numbers of folks over, we'll use paper cups. Do you ever do this where you get a paper cup and you get a Sharpie and everybody write your name on here? Because, I mean, that cup must be worth two and a half cents, and we wouldn't want you to take two. Welcome to our home. But uh, so you write your name on there so that you know which is your cup and you don't take someone else's cup. This is what it's like. It's like the cup of your life has your name written on it. And in that cup is not a water or whatever, soda or juice or whatever it is. But that cup is f- brimming to the top with the holy, righteous anger of God. Because he is holy. His holy, righteous anger against your sin. It has your name on it. Your sins have been recognized by God. He has filled that cup with wrath. And it's sitting there, and Jesus steps in front of you to the counter, and he picks up the cup with your name, brimming with judgment for your sin, and he drinks the cup of your wrath so that he drinks it to the dreg so that it's empty and there is no wrath of God towards you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. There is no holy, furious anger for your sin against you because Jesus drank your cup. And here's the beauty of it. Jesus gives you another cup. He takes your cup and drinks it and he gives you a different cup. That's the cup we receive with bread at communion. It's the cup that represents his blood. So he takes the cup of wrath, which is yours and which is mine, and he gives us the cup of, we could say, communion. And in that cup is the mercy of God, his bloodshed so that we could be forgiven, his bloodshed so that we could be made right with him, his bloodshed so that all of our sins are washed away, put, put aside us, separated from us. God gives you the cup of mercy. Jesus does. And we physically celebrate that whenever we take communion. He takes the cup of wrath with your name on it, and he gives you the cup of communion with his name on it, his blood. Do this in remembrance of me. His blood shed so that our sins could be forgiven. It's a beautiful exchange. No, no greater sacrifices than imaginable than the loving God of the universe would do this. And he's in charge right here ensuring that could happen. Could he have taken these people out? Well, I guess so. If a single word knocks people out, he could do whatever he wants. He could say, forget it. He could go his way. But he is submitting himself, and he is rebuking one who would try to fight physically his enemy, saying, I must drink the cup that the Father has provided. Why? Because he wants to please the Father by winning a people, saving a people for the Father, and because he loves you. 
He loves you. You know, the truth is that we can look at our lives at times and we can wonder about God's love. Sometimes we look at our lives and we say, you know what, because of this circumstance, I wonder if God really loves me. I've been praying about that thing for a long time, and God's not answering. And it's a good thing. It's not like I'm praying some greedy, selfish prayer. I'm praying a good thing, and God's not answering. Does he hear me? Does he care? Does he love me? I thought by now I would be married. Does God love me? I thought by now I would have children. Does God love me? I thought by now my children would be different than they are. Does God love me? I'm married. I thought my spouse would be different than he is or different than she is. Does God really love me? I'm underemployed. I go to work. I could do this job in my sleep. I don't like it. It's boring. It's barely providing enough. Does God love me? I don't have enough money in the bank to make it to the end of the month. I'm not even sure how I'm going to make all my bills this month. Does God really love me? I was trying to do the right thing, and yet my family persecuted me and resisted me for my faith. I tried to make amends in a broken relationship, and the more I tried, the harder they pushed away. Does God really love me? And we can look at the circumstances of our life, and there's no explanation of why everything doesn't happen just the way we would script it. So I don't have an answer for those questions. God knows, and God is good. I don't know why things work the way they do. But I do know this, that the sign of God's love is not determined by your, the amount in your bank. It's not determined by the balance in your checkbook. The sign of God's love is not determined by your health today or lack of health. The sign of God's love is not determined by your wife or your children or your friend or any other circumstance The sign of God's love is determined by the fact that God himself came and drank the cup that I should drink and that you should drink and that God himself became a man and endured suffering on that cross that's indescribable. That's the guaranteed proof of God's love. So many other things, I don't know how they'll work out, but I know that one day we'll see him face to face and we'll be with him. And all of that will seem like a a distant memory. Small things that prepared us for the glory that's to come because of his love and because he gave himself for us. Jesus is sovereign in this situation and in all situations. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is the sacrifice. If you don't know Christ today, I would just encourage you to turn. You know, we heard some testimonies, even from some young people that grew up in a church environment. Welcome to Dallas. I mean, we're filled with a culture where people grew up with a church environment and they heard certain things and their parents were religious or they thought they were okay because they read the Bible and, and went to church some. But the reality is the people who were baptized testified. We had this testimony in both services is that they ultimately realized it's not enough that I knew religious information and that I was sort of moral and that my parents went to church. That wasn't enough that I realized I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven my sins. And if that's you, I would just urge you to respond to God, to turn from your sin and to believe in Jesus. Receive what he did for you on the cross. Believe. Just say, I'm sinful and I deserve your judgment, but Jesus, I believe that you died and you took the judgment that was aimed at me, was due me. So thank you for being my substitute, taking my place. And I trust you to forgive my sins. You're my Savior. You can respond to the Lord like that. And that's what new life in Christ is, is all about. It's not religion, but it's by having our sins forgiven, by encountering Christ. Maybe you are here today and you do know the Savior. You are a Christian. Um, I think this passage calls us to freshly 
consider a couple things. First of all, that God is in control. This arrest scene in the garden, it screams at us that God is in control. Jesus is in control. He's the one that's stepping out and saying, who are you looking for? He's the one who's revealing himself. See, they're in the dark, and sometimes when we're in the dark and we don't understand the purpose of God, we take a dagger and we start slicing at what we think the problem is. And Jesus is communicating here that Peter misunderstands what the problem is, that Jesus is right in the middle of the problem, that God is present in the middle of the problem, that God is acting in the middle of the problem. And even when the problem seems dark, what could be worse? They're taking Jesus away. These men have given their lives to follow Jesus, and now Jesus is giving himself up to the authorities. This is not good. Everything is crumbling in front of them right now. And yet, in the midst of that crumbling, Jesus is in charge. He's causing this. He's working this. He's making this happen. And he's doing this because he loves them. It's going to be much better for them that they lose him physically at this time. For ultimately, the Holy Spirit will come in and dwell them and give them new life. He's going to forgive their sins. That's why he's leaving. It's a good thing, but in the dark hour, we don't see it. And you may be in the dark today. You may be in the darkness of depression and you cannot see where is God in this. You may be lonely and your soul may just ache for relationship and companionship and you cannot see where God is. I want to tell you, I can't explain it, but God is there and God is acting and will act for your good ultimately. You may have a strained or broken relationship. You may have a work-related problem that you cannot see your way out of. The boss is killing you. How are you ever going to get past this? You may lack a job, and that's your darkness today. Financial need. You may have health-related need. You may be waiting on a diagnosis. That is dark when you are waiting for the phone to ring to tell you. Is it cancer? That's dark. You may be in that situation waiting to hear. And in your darkness... God is there and he is acting redemptively for you. Wherever you find yourself in the dark, God is ruling. And just as he did for the disciples and ultimately for us, acting for our good. God is sovereign. He's also the sacrifice. Take comfort. God drank the cup the Father gave him with your name on it. It was filled with holy rage and he drank every drop. So today, you and I who are believers are free free. I just felt in preparing this message, the Lord just burdened my heart that there might be people in both of the services today. And the reality is that you just walk around feeling a a sense of guilt, a sense of condemnation, a sense that God is opposed to you in some way. and, And you're a Christian, you're really a Christian, but you still live. When you get around situations like this, you're aware of what you've done and what you've thought I mean, you think if the people in this room knew what I thought about, even in the last 24 hours, and what I wanted in the last 24 hours, they'd probably bounce me out of here. No, we wouldn't, because we've thought similar things in the last 24 hours. And we're running to a Savior who forgives. The reality is that Jesus' drinking of the cup through his death, through his burial, and through, most importantly, his resurrection, which defeats the power of sin and death, that through that event, he takes the punishment so that we're declared free. And so when you gather here in church, God looks down upon you, and he sees you as forgiven because of the work of his son. 
He sees your sins as washed away. He sees you as right with him. He has declared you righteous. You have no right to bring your sin, which is forgiven before God, and say, God, you're angry with me. God, you're wrathful towards me. God, you're opposed to me because of my sin. We have no right to believe that because he judged his son Jesus for our sins. That's grace. That's love. That's mercy. And I think God wants to remove the chains from some of us. He wants to take the huge burden that we're carrying around and take it off our back and help us to realize that we are loved. Look at the cup with your name on it. It's empty. There's nothing in it. The judgment has been poured out upon Jesus so that you're welcome to a throne of grace with a Father that loves you, with a Son who gave His life for you, with the Spirit who lives in you and empowers you. God speaks over your life, Christian, forgiven. God speaks over your life, righteous. Well, you don't know what I did. Yes, you may have done something as I have unrighteous, but God relates to you based on what Jesus has done. So he declares you righteous. So come to the throne of grace. Cast the cares of the world and the cares of your sins over on him. Freshly receive his love and forgiveness and receive the motivation that he gives to be changed and want to live with him and walk with him. Not cower away from him in the dark, but walk in the light for your sins are forgiven. I think some we did had a baptism today. I felt like some people, God just wants to baptize, which means immerse, immerse us in the love of God. Just as these people got put under this water, this very cold water today and came up to walk in newness of life. I'll say they was bright eyed when they came out of the water, but God wants to immerse you in the love of God, drench you and soak you with the awareness that Jesus took the cup with your name on it and drank it and offers you another cup, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, welcome, love, the cup of communion with him. And it's an eternal love. I think God would call us to stop today and receive afresh in our mind and in our heart. Consider what Jesus did and receive afresh his love, his grace, his mercy for us. He's in charge of our darkness. He's acting in our darkness. And he's acting to save us. And he's forgiven us that we might experience love and mercy and grace from him. Burdened Christian unburden yourself at the foot of the cross before an empty tomb today receiving the freedom God gives. Unbeliever, become a believer and receive the burden you carry, you should be carrying. Until someone pays for that sin, receive Jesus who pays for your sin and have your burden released today as well. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.